Hi, I'm Chris, and welcome to this week's episode of To Be Published, a podcast that provides organizational leaders with the tools to integrate and synchronize, sustain it, and to generate combat power. The views and opinions expressed here are our own and do not reflect the views and opinions of the Department of Defense, the Combined Arms Center, or Army University. Today's discussion with Major General Patrick Donahoe is wide-ranging, but fundamentally, how sustainment best supports maneuver. As a history major from Villanova University, Major General Donahoe takes us from the strategic to the tactical levels of sustainment with a significant amount of historical examples and provides book recommendations to back them up. With over 32 years as an Army officer, Major General Donahoe has served in 23 different assignments before assuming his current position as the Commanding General of the Army's Maneuver Center of Excellence at Fort Benning. With deployments around the world and experience in both the European and Indo-Pacific theaters, he provides a rich context to the discussion of how sustainment best supports maneuver. With all that, General Donahoe, welcome to the show. 23 assignments, huh? 23? That's just French for old. (laughs) (laughs) Young at heart. Great to be here, Chris. Thanks. Yeah, so uh, to get us started, we talk a lot about sustainment on this show. Uh, But could you talk about what you're doing at the Maneuver Center of Excellence uh, in order to transition to large-scale combat operations and multi-domain operations? Yeah, absolutely. So first off, Chris, right, when we think about the maneuver force, the maneuver force cannot maneuver without a very resilient, healthy logistics force to support it, right? And so the and, and, and I think we used to drive this home to maneuver officers very early in their careers in our previous, um, you know, organizations. So as an example, I was, I was the support platoon leader of second tank in Korea as a, as a, as a second lieutenant. I got, I, I got done with tank platoon time and moved over to the support platoon, uh, you know, and, and, and frankly, I had no idea what I was getting in, involved with, no idea what I was doing. I can remember, I remember actually asking the battalion S4 exactly, you know, they're like, hey, sir, what is my job, right? And, uh, and I had a, had a great platoon sergeant in that platoon named Sergeant First Class Donald Hill, who took me under his wing to explain what the support platoon did and how we were fundamentally uh, you know, important to the battalion's ability to, to fight. And so we talk about resilient logistics. This, this is going to blow your mind, but that was a tank battalion, right? So back in the days of pure tank battalions, there were 58 uh, tanks in that battalion. And we had just transitioned from M68-3s to M1-IPs, right? So that was the that was the first iteration of the M1 tank, still with the 105-millimeter L67 rifled cannon, right? Um, I had 23 Hemet fuelers in that platoon, support platoon, 23 Hemet fuelers, 15 Hemet cargo trucks, six five-ton trucks, uh, and then my the Humvee that I that I rode around in. Um, and to and and the fundamental understanding that you came to you came out of a job like that as a as a maneuver officer was this great appreciation for how fun, you know, again, how central to our ability to fight was the logistics train. And then, 
then you understood how you linked back from the battalion field trains. Well, you know, actually from the from the LRP is the logistics release points up at the companies to the battalion combat trains and back to the field trains yeah. as part of the brigade support area. And, and then in, in reality, in in Korea at that time, I would periodically even have to get to the division support area. So I can remember I can remember doing that in uh, uh, Team Spirit 1990, right, going to the division support area. And, and, and of course, that was like going into the bar in Star Wars with all the weirdos that are down in that division <laughs> support area. But it was it, it was it was an education in how a mechanized army fights and how reliant we are on 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 resilient logistics. And so, so now fast forward to what we're doing now. Right. Because we're we're in this process at Fort Benning as part of, you know, working, you know, with our with the great folks at CAC and TRADOC and then our, our folks into the building, you know, working with G3FM and working through force design updates and, and how that's trying to support the a, a bunch of things, right? The transition to multi-domain operations. You know, we're going to go through a couple of iterations. This, this is this is transition from active defense to airland battle, right? So the Army's going to go through a couple of turns of this as we try to figure out how we're going to fight uh, in an evolving character of war. Lots but, of experimentation. So it's all of that to inform uh, these these organizations that we're currently building. But I think very, very important to for all of us in uniform right now is this transition from a brigade-centric army that was purpose-built to fight wide area security counterinsurgency campaigns with for all the right reasons, right, for the last, you know, 18 years or so transitioning back or transitioning to a division centric unit uh, organization where the division is the tactical echelon of, of, of importance, right? It, it, the division commander's ability to fight their division effectively, we, we have to get out of our own way, right? So we've got to release the artillery from the, from the BCTs back to the divisional artillery, right? Right now, if we were to go one up, two back in brigades, or two up, one back, is you know two up, one back. You, you're by definition, you're leaving a third of your artillery in reserve, violating a core principle for how we fight. Absolutely. Right? And so, so we've got to do that. We got to get back to that. It's the same thing with logistics. We've got to be able to swing logistics to the main effort, right? And and we've we've got to be organized to do that at the division level. And so we're we're going to have to reestablish or establish those those organizations at the proper echelon to fight the division and therefore the brigade designs are changing right and so we've we've gone forward with a a series of of brigade uh, design changes uh some of them are still conceptual uh but to get to um divisions that can fight their brigades organize their brigades as brigade combat teams but then the division you know the two heavy divisions that were, were really talking about giving the mission to penetrate, right? So they're being referred to as penetration divisions. I'm not, you know, I'm not sure I'm really comfortable with saying, hey, that's a penetration division. I think we should refer to them as heavy divisions reinforced. Okay. Right. And, and the tactical task we give them is to penetrate because they're going to have to do a whole bunch of other things, right? Right. I mean, those organizations, they're going to pursue. I mean, they're going to exploit. I mean, they're, they're going to attack. I mean, they're, they're, they may even have to defend, you know, but, you know, they're a heavy division and they're getting reinforced with a whole bunch of stuff 
so that they can do wet gap crossings at, you know, in stride and keep pushing, pushing on the enemy. Right. And so, um, we, as we look at designing those outfits, right, we've, that division commander needs, uh, his or her divisional cavalry squadron, right. To, to shape, uh, to do, you know, to fight for information, uh, and then to secure the move. Right. So if we look at, as the, as that division penetrates, you can imagine that divisional cavalry squadron is now doing a moving flank guard on, on the, you know, the Southern or Northern flank of the, of the division as it's, as it's attacking to penetrate. Right. If we're in a movement of contact, I mean, he's, the division commander needs now that divisional cavalry squadron out front conducting the zone reconnaissance, trying to identify the enemy um, with, of course, you know, the smallest element uh, that you'd want to do that with. And that would be the cab squadron, you know, purposely designed to, for that mission. Right. By the way, I mean, I've had, I've had a lot of talks with Mark similarly, right. Okay. If you have the division cab squadron now forward of two brigades and it's, it's either moving or it's in a, it's in a guard mission or a screen. How do you resupply it? How do you sustain something that far forward? Right. And, and, and now through two BCTs. Okay. Who's got the responsibility to do that. Right. So we go back, we got to go back to like the, the FM 1795 from 1995. (laughs) Okay. Who's, who's got responsibilities for that. Right. That becomes a division's responsibility to support its, cavalry squadron forward of its brigades. And, and oftentimes that was, those were taskings to brigades to provide support, um, you know, an area of support relationships. And so we're going to learn as we, as we experiment with these designs, we're going to learn more and more about them, right? That is not the divisional cavalry squadron from 1995. Although that's a good place to start because that was a pretty freaking good outfit, right? Right. Designed on the heavy side, designed to really be able to fight for information and, and to be able to, to truly guard the main body, right? And, and it was a powerful fighting organization. So if we start there and then we talk about, okay, what other capabilities do we need? Now, the, so this becomes this multi-domain capability, right? So, so what do we have inside that organization that's got, you know, it's, it's electronic warfare capability, both, you know, to, to surveil the enemies, um, you know, radio nets, you know, what cyber capabilities does it have now to understand the, you know, the, the use of cyber, both to defend our, our own, our own networks, and then to understand how it's being, how cyber is being used by our adversary, and then be able to monitor or attack or, uh, you know, impact uh, those, those critical cyber nodes, right? Right. By the way, this isn't really, although those things are new in many ways, it's really not new intellectually. Go back to before the fall of the Soviet Union, right? We, we were going to monitor their radio nets. And we were going to determine. And we had units dedicated to saying, hey, that frequency, that net right there, that's a, that's a sustainment net. And that net right there, that's a fires net. That net right there, that's a command and control net. And then we would determine what we wanted to do. Did we want to just, did we want to monitor because we were able to pick up intel, intelligence from it? Did we want to, did we want to, when the attack was going in, do we want to jam, you know, the, the C2 nets so that they can't react properly, right? Do we want to then, when we transition, uh, you know, to the defense after this culmination on the objective, do we want to jam their artillery nets so they can't, they can't focus their artillery on us? This is the same, we got to go through the same thought process when we look at the cyber domain 
and really also. So that's all part of the discussion and part of the experimentation we're doing. If we could pull that thread a little bit, it's not necessarily the word operationalizing that cyber and that EW. What it is, is translating it into effects. So a lot of times when we talk about cyber here, we just sort of cyber and that's it. But really, what is the effect that we want to have on the enemy? And that's all we need to be able to translate to uh, our cyber support you know, soldiers of, hey, block this, delay that, monitor this, you know, so screen that, guard, et cetera. Uh, I think right. translating those into tactical tasks that then allow cyber or EW or SEMA to do. I think that's all part of part of what we're doing. And so like, you know, the maneuver warfighting conference that we're going to have uh, on the 15th through 17th of February. It's a three day event. Each day got, has its own has its own theme. Right. But the whole thing we're talking about is the deadly array, which comes from a, uh, a British poet named Campbell wrote a poem, The Soldier's Dream, about a soldier in the Napoleonic War who, you know, wakes up for, uh, you know, wakes up in the middle of the night uh, after having a dream that he was home with his family, right? But, and unfortunately, he's now back on the battlefield and he's facing the dreadful array. And that's that's one of the lines in the poems. We've taken that, the dreadful array, and it's modernizing for large-scale combat operations in the Indo-Pacific, right? And so... So we're looking at the first day, the first day of the conference is the changing character of warfare. And we, we, we are watching, uh, we are watching what is occurring across the world right now. And we are seeing an evolution in the character of war. And we, we know that we're, we're watching unmanned systems that, you know, have proliferated over the past, you know, 30 years, but now we're seeing uh, more and more of those we're seeing them now tar you know they're now they're now loitering munitions that that have evolved from this we're seeing un more and more unmanned capacity on the ground right this is going to have a sustainment function for us as well as we as we look at unmanned sustainment as we look at unmanned systems being able to fly forward and deliver uh, you know deliver sustainment to an exact point on the on the ground and also to then you know evac casualties etc so that that's that's an evolving character of warfare that that's occurring right we're seeing you know information misinformation disinformation being being used i mean i'd recommend you you know peter singer's book like war mm -hmm. right and you know burn in for you know some of these some of these evolving uh uh things that are occurring that are going to impact warfare right and so so we know that so, so that's the first day we're gonna we're gonna spend on the evolving character war we're gonna talk talk what we just saw in Armenia and Azerbaijan. We're going to have the California National Guard, uh, the 40th Division Commander, Laura Yeager. She's going to talk uh, urbanization and urban warfare and how, you know, we, we, we've really got to start talking more about how we're going to fight in uh, cities, whether whether it's a mega city or just, you know, Columbus, Georgia, right? I mean, what does a fight look like in an urban environment uh, given the proliferation of all these unmanned systems and, and the increasing lethality of what we've got with a return to large-scale combat operation. So that's day one, right? So day two is the modernization day. So that's, we'll have General McKean from Futures Command uh, out. We're gonna we're gonna have uh, Generals Burris and, and Kaufman talk their, their CFTs, right? Next generation combat vehicle and soldier lethality. They're gonna do a kind of a, you know, talk about how the equipment modernization piece is working. We're gonna have uh, Johnny Richardson out of the 1st Cav Division talk about the modernization of the division, right? And then, how the how we're how we're evolving 
the division as a as the the unit of action. And so he's going to talk about that. And so so again, real good day. And then we're going to do on on. And by the way, we're going to have the Marine. Uh, we're going to have the Marine uh, Combat Development guy come in and talk about modernization of the Marine Corps because they they're doing some really unique things, right? They're now changing they have their robots. whole force structure. It seems like, right. yeah. Uh, I think their decision to get rid of the tank is asinine, but that's uh, but that's okay. Every picture, every picture of the Marines on an island in 1944, 45 had a tank behind a tank it, right? Yep. And so you know, we you go to Kwajalein, it's a small group of atolls. There was there were a whole bunch of tanks on it, right? And so you, you, we may want to think about that, right? All right, so so anyway, so that's so that's modernization. We'll have the Brit come in and talk about what the Brits are doing as well. That'll be good. Then the third day we're going to talk about is the, the emerging challenges in the Indo-Pacific. And so uh, we'll, General Garrett will start the day off from a force comp perspective, and then uh, then we're going to have retired General Abrams talk about um, you know talk, talk about how you know. Um, you know, kind of his experiences in, in the Indo-Pacific and the challenges and the role of land power uh, in the in the Indo-Pacific. He'll he'll obviously talk about you know the centrality of land power on the current Korean Peninsula. Right? So, but it'll be uh, and that'll be a good discussion. And then and then we'll have uh, then we'll have General Flynn and F- General Flynn from USERPAC is going to come in and talk. Uh, he's going to come in from Australia, right, by VTC. But we'll we'll have his Australian deputy here at Benning talking from the stage. So that'll be, that'll be a good use of, Hey, here's, here's the user pack commanders, uh, thoughts and vision, uh, about land power in the Pacific. And then we'll have, you know, the deputy, uh, who just is one of our Australian, you know, guys, uh, and, 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 and that'll show the kind of the, the, the U S unique approach to the problems in the world from a, and we, we do everything combined. Right. And so, that's kind of what we're all doing, how we're thinking right now about this this movement to large-scale combat operations focused in a multi-domain environment. And so we talked briefly about the Indo-Pacific uh, and then your role uh, as the DCG at 8th Army. Um, what are some of your experiences, uh, both on the pen and then maybe in the broader Indo-Pacific, of how we synchronize sustainment across that geographically diverse area, island island? How do we sync it? with the concept of operations. So, you know, in your, you know, in your intro for me, you mentioned that I was a history major at Villanova. And so I, I, I will tell you, I, I think we have got to go back and we've got to read the history of the second world war in the Pacific and, and read it with an open mind and read it broadly. And so one of the, one of the things I got to do, uh, I got to do in, in eighth army was really look at the, the history of the eighth United States army, which by the way, at the end of the war in the, you know, the second world war, it was, it was referred to, it was referred to as the amphibious eighth. Right. Did you know that? I, I did right? not. And so, so, I mean, just, just across, in, in a, it's in a 90 day period of time in 1945, the, the eighth army makes 60 amphibious assaults, right? It's, it's an amphibious assault every day and a half. I mean, the tempo that they are operating at in the liberation of the Philippines, by the, by the way, the size of the force should, should imply the role of land power in the Pacific, right? right. There are two U.S. armies in the Pacific or in the Philippines, Sixth Army under Kruger, and then Eighth Army comes in, right? And so, I mean, you know, Eichelberger's got Eighth Army coming in and clearing the islands to the west, right? Goes into Leyte, he's got... 
He's got a he's forget how many divisions. I think, I think there's there's nine divisions in the Eighth Army at that point. He's got the Eleventh Airborne Division and the First Cav Division in that formation with him. Moving Eleventh, moving and clearing 11th, islands, conducting air assaults, amphibious assaults, joint forcible entries, as we'd call them today. The Eleventh Airborne Division goes into Leyte. A single day, they amphibiously assault one regiment and jump the other regiment. That's one day. To show me a division that could do that today. Right. We've got to get back two, to that. Two specific, two incredibly complex operations. Some guy named Jumpin' Jim, Jim Swing from Jersey City, New Jersey, who's the commander of, of the 11th Division, the 11th Airborne. Commands the division for five years. Golly. 1943 to 48 commands the 11th, 11th Airborne, right? But, but when you look at how we were organized for combat, we had these things called engineer special brigades that were designed to lift, amphibiously lift a division, right? We do not have that capability today, right? Would we need it? Well, if, you, if you're gonna try to island hop through an archipelago, you're gonna need some level of that capacity. The helicopters help us overcome that absolutely right so had we had had we had the 101st airborne division uh in the philippines we would have operated differently right but the sustainment piece of that is going to come by water right so we need you know our our, our army watercraft have a incredible uh you know val value to us when we're operating in you know, whether you whether you're in the you know you know the archipelago of indonesia or if you're in the philippines or you're operating you know somewhere uh, somewhere in the littoral on the Asian mainland, right? And so, so we we got to really think through, um, really, really got to think through that and how that's done. So I, I just finished uh, the book, uh, Neptune's Inferno, which is all about the coming of age of the U.S. Navy off of Guadalcanal. Fascinating, fascinating book. I, I, I recommend it to every Army officer out there. It it lays out the challenges of dealing with evolving technologies that maneuver us, right? For in this case, ship, you know, ship captains and admirals don't understand. They don't fully understand uh, how radar works. They don't understand the uh, the uh, the ranges that it works at, the capabilities, and then how to employ it. And so we, by default, we are who we are, right? We, we've grown up. You know, I've been in the army almost 33 years. You, you grow up under you, with a set of learning ex experiences that form how you see the world, right? And so at one point, uh, the new admiral, I think it's Callahan, gets on board the USS San Francisco and he leads, he leads his column into the slot, right? Into what becomes known as Iron Bottom Sound. The San Francisco is the only ship in the division that doesn't have radar, but it's the largest ship. And so by by, cult, uh, by custom, the admiral goes to that ship as his flagship, and by custom, he leads. It's the worst possible uh, operational deployment you could you could imagine, given the technologies. But he doesn't understand. He doesn't understand what he doesn't understand. The other challenge that the Navy rolls through here is our, our ability to put guns on target, and so it's the fundamental training with the equipment you have. Right. So they're they've got to retrain all of their gunnery officers. They got to reorganize 
how they uh, how they organize for combat on their ships so that they can they can use radar gun you know guided gunnery to overcome the Japanese uh, advantage in optical gunnery at night right and so incredible right and so it's it's everything we wrestle with it's leadership it's it's technology and its impact on how we fight our ability to train for it and then you know when we bring it all together how that how that impacts it and by the way you see the same you see some of the same challenges on the Japanese side. Uh, the Japanese destroyer fleet's very, very effective. Uh, but one of the things that they do when they start getting hit by hit by American uh, American large caliber shells is they routinely lay smoke screens. Doesn't help you against radar gun- guided gunnery. And if you're an optically guided gunnery navy, that's only going to hurt you because now you're actually only blinding yourself, right? right? So it's. It's really, I mean, it's a real interesting interplay of, of, of all of those, you know, challenges that we are wrestling with right now as an army, right? Technology, how we organize, how we train, and the impacts of what we can do to the enemy. And then you possibly, are we going to blind ourselves with our own cyber capabilities, et cetera, right? It's really, really interesting. And then I think it's really neat because it's also talking about the South Pacific and, you know, the... Our, our, our movement back to Indo-PACOM, how, how would we fight those fights today? Yeah, I, think it's, I, think it's, I think it's rich for discussion. And I think, I think if, if, we're, if I was running some PME somewhere, I'd probably, I'd probably be installing a bunch of history for the Second World War. And then I would be, uh, I would be moving us on to map sheets in that part of the world. And we've, got, we've got quite a bit of that here at CGSC and we're pivoting. Uh, our exercise program to the Indo-Pacific. So it sounds like we're, yeah, we're right on board. What we talk about, what we talk about here at Benning is that we're, we got to get east of the Vistula against the doctoral Russian threat, and we got to get north of the Han against the doctoral Chinese threat. Yeah, yeah. We, um, I was reading an article this morning, uh, and it was about the bias of presentism. Uh, and so being trapped in the present and forgetting the lessons of, of history. And so while history you know, doesn't repeat, it certainly does rhyme. And I think that that's an interesting uh, discussion and book. I'll certainly pick that one up and take yeah, it. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, again, you know, I mean, you know, I don't know what your, I don't know what your thoughts are on general come Secretary Mattis, right? But there, there's the great quote, or, and I'll paraphrase it from Mattis, right? He's never had to, he's never had to, had to wrestle with a new problem because he's read so widely and deeply that yeah, you know, most problems are very similar to ones that have been solved in the past, right? Right, right. Hey, sir, it's Paul Slim. How are you? Paul, how are you? I'm good, sir. At that point, we have to be we have to be careful how we apply historical analogs, and sometimes they work, and sometimes they don't. And a great example in my mind is some of the frustration I felt in the early aughts was, well, we occupied Germany and we occupied Japan, and that worked out great. Paradigms don't translate well from a country like Japan or a country like Germany into Central and Southwest Asia. I'm not sure that's the right lesson, right? So how did we organize to do that as an army in, in the 1940s? But that, that, I think that's the lesson. We didn't organize to do it yeah. in 2000. We had the we army of occupation. Yeah, we just thought it was going to magically happen, right? So, so um John Hersey's Pulitzer Prize winning novel from 1945, A Bell for a Have you read it? No, sir. Right? It's, it's Italian American kid in New York City working as a 
you know, working as a city manager kind of guy, gets drafted. They make him a major, right? So Major Japolo. And he goes, he becomes an AMGOT officer, American Military Governance of Occupied Territories. I mean, the entire, entire branch of the Army. Right. Designed to do nothing but govern occupied territories. Manned with folks, you know, he's going to Italy, speaks the language, right? He's but he's got governmental training, right? I mean, I'm I am quoted in like the Dallas Morning Star or something from uh, <laughs> 2006 saying, "What the hell do I know about running a city government?" Right? But not my right, not the right, best right. quote to hear the paper associated with your name, but you know, it is what it is, right? Yeah. But we organized to do that. We organized the logistics to do it. Right. Right. We said, "Hey, we're going to have to feed." populations of you know of these of these territories as we occupy them right right because this goes back to the fundamental and this is what concerns me in some way about the current narrative of the purpose of the army right the army's purpose is not to defeat enemy standoff capabilities does that does that play a role a- absolutely right but only if you follow that with this with this you know group of phrases we defeat enemy standoff in order to bring the close combat force to bear, to defeat enemy ground formations, right. seize critical terrain, and control populations, in order to deliver sustainable political outcomes for the nation. Right. Right. If we only talk about uh, hypersonics and our ability for global reach and targeting, we're making an we're making an Italian's 1920 argument. Right. I mean, it's the due argument that the Air Force constantly brings out of their bag that war is solely a targeting exercise and if we only destroy the right amount of targets in the right you know the right sequence we will win because right. the enemy will will capitulate we know that that's not true we, we know it we know it in our bones and we're not making that argument today and i think it's i think i think it's a missed opportunity yeah right? okay there's uh one of the things that we talked with Ms. Sid Smith, as I said, she's the SES president of Army Logistics University. Is some of the things we're seeing out in, in the operational force about still struggling with maintenance discipline and supply discipline and so forth. One of the narratives that we push on the faculty here and that we're increasingly pushing on to the students there is a quote out of doctrine that says, uh, the purpose of sustaining operations is to generate and maintain combat power in support of, and it says decisive in shaping operations. I understand with the new 3.0, we may change that operational framework a bit. But the purpose of all that is to allow commanders to generate a relative advantage in combat power. And every warfighting function has a piece of that, certainly. Um, what are you seeing and how are we educating maneuvers uh, at the Maneuver Center of Excellence at tactical and operational sustainment to allow those commanders to generate that relative advantage in combat power? You know, Lieutenant General Scott McKean, when he was here at Benning as the armor commandant, right? So we're going back uh, five years, six years, six years. Um, he reestablished what you would have remembered as JMOC or BMOC, right? The Battalion Maintenance Officer Course or the Junior Maintenance Officer Course, right? Um, he reestablished that as the Maneuver Leaders Maintenance Course. But it, it is exactly that. It's it's to train maneuverists to be to, to be you know maintenance savvy, right? We we've we have to be the the armor force. Obviously, a little bit more. Uh, you know, there's a there's a greater predilection to understanding the maintenance system on the in the armor force than it is in the infantry force. Right. But the infantry force needs 
needs the same level of fidelity on how maintenance works, right? Yeah, it's, I would tell you it's tactical sustainment is what we focus on uh, here at, at Benning. And, and it, it, is, it is integral to the armor officer basic course. We talk a little bit about it at the captain's course, probably not as much as we should, but we, especially for our armor officers, that pathway through that maintenance leader course uh, is one of the pathways to, to leave Benning, right? Uh, you know, the infantry guys, it's ranger school for, for, for the armor guys, it's a maintenance leader course, right? And so uh, that that is what we're trying to do to rebuild uh, the fundamental understanding uh, of maneuver leaders on the maintenance uh, in sustainment. And so I started at the beginning of this talk with Chris, I talked about, you know, the way we used to organize where we had armor officers, infantry officers that were support platoon leaders and battalion motor officers, right? And we're, we've gone back to that, which is which is really helpful, right? Because the logisticians of the world, you know, do they need to understand how tactical, you know, at the, at the absolute front edge works? Absolutely, right? They got to understand how a battalion sustains itself. But really, you know, their, their meat and potatoes is kind of, you know, battalion field trains and back right and uh and and by not having a generation or more of armor and infantry officers not right. have to wrestle with how sustainment happens how complex it is how difficult it is uh i think we i think we lost a step there in, in the the value of how we how we have to do that right I think and so and, and then the 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 you know, the centrality of sustainment to how we fight, right? I mean, we, the American army, I mean, we, we're, a, we, you know, we're, we have the luxury of yeah. lots and lots of sustainment, right? I think we've got to be, got to be concerned about our ability to sustain ourselves and, 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 and the interaction and interplay of how we organize for sustainment and how we organize for combat are one in the same. So, you know, let's talk historic lessons, right? So, Paul, you're a, you love tanks. On, on what day of Operation Barbarossa did the Nazis make first contact with the T-34? Day one. Day one, right. Day one. But when I learned that this year, reading a book, I was stunned. I, I, in, my, in, in my own narrative of how the war on the Eastern Front worked out, it's you know, the Soviets, you know, get crushed for a year and a half and then they develop the T-34 and, you know, the, the you know, KV-1 and some large, you know, the Joseph Stalin. And that turns the tide against against the Nazis, right? It's not true. It's day one Barbarossa. They cross the, you know, the demarcation line in Poland. Right. And the, and the Nazis make contact with KV-1s and T-34s on the first day. Here's the challenge. 76 millimeter ammunition didn't have it forward right right so so the soviet t-34s are just getting rolled up they don't have any they don't have ammunition for it it's a diesel vehicle not a gasoline vehicle they only had gasoline for it didn't have any diesel for it right and so you run into these these significant problems right so then the t-34s are running out of running out of diesel fuel and they're just stopping on the road and the, and the nazis are you know driving right on by them right so it's it's, it's how do you organize your sustainment right. to make sure that, that you can take advantage of the capabilities that you've got, right? They, 
they were a general, they were a fifth generation fighter plane compared to, you know, compared to what the, what the Germans were operating. The Germans were operating Panzerwagen twos and threes. Threes and Panzerwagen has got a machine gun on it. Right? right. I mean, that's it. And I mean, so it's, I mean, it's a, it, it, sustainment's a big deal. And if we, if we don't train our maneuver officers to be thinking about yeah. how they're going to sustain themselves, we're going to have a problem. Can't, you can't really generate a relative advantage unless you can bring all your systems to bear the way they're designed and the way they're supposed to operate. But going back to organization, well, sir, I you should write that down and put it in a doctrinal manner. One of my formative assignments, you know, I was an armor officer as a lieutenant, and I was fortunate to be a support platoon leader during Desert Storm. Uh, and that was a particularly unique fight in that it was short, and we were relatively remain in visual contact with the supported force and whatnot, but not, not going to be the same in LISCO. And uh, one of the things that we have now that we didn't have back then is a forward support company in each maneuver battalion. But from your experience, and one of the things that helped us tremendously is we parked the HHC commander in the spo shop of the FSB at the time because that individual was intimately aware of how maneuver worked anyway and he knew the specifics of what we were trying to do operationally and tactically during desert storm so if you could go back to being a battalion commander with an fsc placement of people and task and purpose of people to support the sustainment fight vis-a-vis the hac commander and first sergeant fsc commander and first sergeant hhcxo and so forth how would you configure and what would you tell those folks that their mission would be to help sustain the battalion yeah so so, so, so first off, right? I, I think, I think we've got challenges with how we're currently organized, right? You know, why did we go to the Ford? I'm sorry. Why did we go to Ford support companies? We did it because women weren't legally allowed to serve inside our line battalions. Well, well, well that's no longer a fact. I, I would advocate for organic sustainment inside our combined arms battalions, inside our infantry battalions because it it makes more sense right and then you don't have this because right now what you do is you have this challenge of the hhc commander and first sergeant and their relationship with the ford support company commander and first sergeant now those guys have got to be on a those guys have got to be on you know uh good good terms right right well we all know that so that tends to start to fall apart when 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 there's friction right and so go to unity of command, right? That's, I think it's one of our principles. For, and, and then organize so that the maneuver battalion owns its pointy edge of logistics. And then you have that, then you have those relationships between folks who are more professionally mature, right? So that becomes battalion XOs and, and then the SPO and you know, battalion commanders and the forward support battalion commander Right. But but the ownership of the organization itself is in there. Right. The other side of it, too, is it, it then allows you to do talent management uh, a little bit better. Right. Right. And so when you were a support platoon leader, you were probably the support platoon leader because you were a pretty senior lieutenant and you had performed as a as an armor, you know, as a tank platoon leader. And, and the boss said, OK, hey, I'm going to I'm going to take my most tactically savvy lieutenant. And I'll make him the scout platoon leader. I'll make I'll take the guy who does math best. I'll make him the mortar platoon leader. And then I'll take kind of the guy who's the smartest and make him the support platoon, right? Didn't work out that way in second tank when I was there, but I'm sure that's exactly what it was in your battalion, right? 
and and then you don't have the problem. The problem I had as a battalion commander, frankly, was my my distribution platoon leader was a brand new second lieutenant. Right. Right. I mean, the we can argue one of the hardest jobs inside a battalion. And then you bring somebody in who's culturally separated from your organization, right? Because and you know she, she was she was trying to learn her craft in probably the most difficult 0102 job for a logistician. Right. And and that is that's a good point though and uh I should I should be able to walk into any CP or talk at the brigade level and everyone in those operation centers should have a current and future understanding of who is the main and supporting effort of whatever phase we're in right now and who's the main and supporting efforts and what's their state of combat power right now and I think we 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 are challenged in the sustainment for fighting function to think along those lines, primarily because we, of how we've operated we, for the last 20 years. We are, so. we are challenged across the board with this, yeah. right? And this is, this, this is, again, this is a BCT centric army designed to fight right. wide yeah. area security, counterinsurgency campaigns. Yeah. Now trying to get back to a division centric army designed to fight large scale combat operations campaigns. Right. And, and therefore yeah. we've got, we were going to have to wait main efforts with all of it, right? Artillery, you know, it's it's all of it that's got to get weighted, right? Engineer assets, we're not, we haven't built an experience of that. And your battalion commanders today are, they came in the army after 9-11. The the pre-combat, you know, the pre-command courses that are coming through, those guys are 2005 commissionees. Right. But they never had to think through, how how do you move assets? And, and by the way, your brigade commanders have really never had to think about that. And they've grown up in an army where they owned everything. So now as they finally get their chance to be a brigade commander and somebody comes in and goes, hey, I'm taking your artillery battalion. Like, That's mine. Right. right. No, 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 it's not. Well, right? to me, then, to me, it's a logic trail. Who is the main effort? Yeah. What is their current I'm state with- of combat power? And what does that do to the relative advantage math? And if I haven't met huh? that math, how do I generate that relative advantage and it's either fixing things getting new equipment or with fires or with masking terrain or with deception etc cetera, etc cetera. and i think that's where we continue to educate sustainers here we've got a long way to go but relative advantage is the coin of the realm in lisco and how do i get there it's not tuesday so it's the kbr convoy pulling into my fob with eight hundred thousand right. gallons of fuel and ice cream and ice cream <laughs> The cultural problem brigade and below is it's mine. Right. Right. It's not, it's the divisions. And that's, right. that's what we're going to, that's this fight we got going on right now. Right? It's logic versus culture. Roger. So, all right. Here's what I'm reading right now. What's that? Book called 1913. Really short, it's easy. Paul Schlimm could read it. <laughs> it's, uh, but, I, but I go back to this, this whole, you know, historical analogies. Piece. Here's here's my critique of a lot of army messaging right now. But like we tend to we tend to tell ourselves it's 1973 all over again, right? You've heard this, yep. right? Hey, it's 1973 all over again. We're, we're we're making the magic of you know what was Tradoc and Forcecom and how they revolutionized everything the army did. The big five. Right? We're gonna we're, we're gonna monitor the big five modernization programs, revolutionize training and everything else. So it's it's really it's really it's comforting for us to say it's 1973. Hey, we're coming out of Vietnam, but in reality, the future is bright. 
right? And, you know, we're going to learn from the Yom Kippur War. Don Starry and Dupuy are going to save us. We're going to buy the right stuff, and we are going to kick everybody's ass for the next 30 years. Hey, that's great. What if we're wrong? But what if it's not 1973? What if it's what if it's 1903? And we're the Brits, right? Because because the first half of the 20th century isn't good for the British, no. right? It's the it, it takes them from number one to somewhere in the middle, right? And and it's it's this Im- imperative for us to understand what the transition from a long period of great power peace. Right. So that's the Council of Europe, right? It's the post Napoleonic Council of Europe, 100 years of peace, a lot of small wars in there. Right. We've been doing a lot of that ourselves. Right. But we're at we're at 80 years into the liberal world order post the American designed post World War Two global order. And we're seeing it fray and, and we're and we're starting to see this, you know, Technological advances in the two decades before the sec, uh, before the First World War are revolutionary, right? First powered flight, 1903. First use of the Maxim gun in combat, 1892. Right? First FM radios, like 1907. 1906 is uh, launch of uh, uh, the Dreadnought, right? Dreadnought, yeah. I, I mean, it's – and then at the same time, geopolitically, you're starting to see fissures geopolitically. You know, first de- first modern defeat of a European power by an Asiatic power, right? Japo Russo Japanese War, 1905, the coming of age of the United States, right? 1898 to 1902, Spanish American War, Philippine insurrection, right? A challenge to the global world order, relatively benign from the United States, but you have the rise of Imperial Germany, right? Which which is a direct existential threat to the global colonial driven world order that the British sit on top of and the French are pretty high on that uh, on that as well. And and that and and all that technological and and uh, and geopolitical churn bring you great power not competition but conflict and you have you have the meat grinder that is the first world war. Doesn't solve it there. We play it all again 20 years later in an even worse conflagration, right? And so our job right now is to realize the dangers of where we are in the world to prepare our military to effectively fight against two aggressive adversaries who have named us. And we need to prepare not to fight them, but we've got to prepare to deter them because what we need to do is take ourselves off a course to great power conflict because of the absolute, you know, violence and destruction that that'll bring upon the entire world. We, we're, I, I think we're at a risky point. Especially when you combine it with some of the books you've already mentioned, uh, like Like War and Burn-In and the technological advances. Same, I, I agree. So 1913. Second question, what's yeah. your favorite movie? So The Princess Bride. Yeah. Absolutely. Inconceivable. Inconceivable. I, yep. And if you could tell your 20-year-old self one thing, we talked earlier, you got 32 years in the Army. Uh, if you could tell your 20-year-old self, second lieutenant, what would it be? There is no rush. And, and so, like, when I talk to, I talk to lieutenants today, yeah, they're, they're, they're in this, I, I've got to, you know, I've got to position myself to get third corps in 2044, right? And, and you're like, hey, man, there, there is no, there's no rush for that. Right. There's also there's there's also a lot of 
I've got to get to combat, right? I'm, I'm in this army and everybody's got a combat patch except me, right? And, uh, you, know, you know, Paul said, hey, he, he was in Desert Storm. I was stop lost in Korea, right? I don't get a combat patch until I'm a lieutenant colonel. You know, there, there's a lot of crying in the shower that comes with the combat patch. So there's no, there's no rush for that. And so you got to use every minute you've got to prepare, but you're not in a rush. Awesome, sir. Well, thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you for talking about your work at the Maneuver Center of Excellence. And uh, I appreciate all your wise wisdom there. <laughs> hey, Chris, thanks. thanks. Thanks for having me, Paul. Thanks. You guys are awesome.